0: Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group, and now, Kevin Ray.
1: And welcome into the Housing Hour. I am co-host Mark Griffith, filling in for the very verbal Kevin Ray that is not with us today, but that's okay. We will carry on without him. And I uh, just want to first tell you that our show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And we've got offices around the state and some other states, too. But uh, we can serve you just about in any community that you're listening to this show at. We could probably serve you in some way or capacity. Give us a call. Check us out online, mortgageinvestorsgroup.com, migonline.com. Either one will get you there. So, But thank you all for joining us. And let me tell you how to check in with us thehousinghour.com is our treasure trove that's where we have all of our past shows lined up and ready for you to go in series form I put them in series form so check it out anything you're interested in knowing we probably have done an interview on it this is about our 11th year i think that kevin and i've been doing this so there's a lot of stuff out there also check out our facebook at the housing hour slash the housing hour there's uh you know, interact with us on social media. We love that. Kevin really loves that. Kevin is is definitely the quintessential social media guy.
2: He is the king of social media. The
1: king of social media. So he loves that. And that Twitter, at the Housing Hour. So tweet at us, at the Housing Hour. And, of course, Kevin loves to pick on me because I know nothing about Pinterest. So um, other than the fact I do have a a log on and sign on, and I, I get into it every now and again. (laughs) And on our board today is Adam Litton. Howdy, Adam. Hey, how's it going? It's doing good, and we appreciate uh, you taking care of us every single Tuesday. Yeah, it's good time. And Saturdays and Sundays and all through the week. So we appreciate that. And uh, we have a special guest with us back. This is part two of a show that we've done. uh, We've done a couple of years in a row. Richard Swan with Mortgage Investors Group, but today he is wearing the official U.S. Coast Guard auxiliary uniform because we're going to do part two of the show. We had a couple of weeks back, and you can find it on the House an Hour, part one. Um, but we thought it's such an important thing about boating safety and swimming safety and all the safety around water because we got a lot of water out there in East Tennessee and surrounding areas. So we thought we better just pick this back up and talk because I've had a lot of interactions, I have some emails about questions that they've had. But we have Richard Swan's public affairs officer with United Coast, United, united States, States Car- Coast, Coast, Guard Coast Guard Auxiliary, <laughs> united, <laughs> the United Coast of East Tennessee.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of coastline in East Tennessee. You, I will, united it all, didn't you? Give you that. <laughs> but anyway, welcome on the show again. Thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy coming on your all show. Well, you give out so much good information, and that's why I'm here today is to give out information to people. On boating safety, well, and that is good. Many of us in this area have grown up being on the water. That I've grown up being on the water, but a lot of people are not familiar with everything that they have to do on the water and all the requirements for boaters on the water. And that's what we're going to digest a little bit today, or we're going to talk dig about a little, little deeper today. Dig a little deeper and talk a little bit about laws and boating safety and equipment that you're required to have on your boat you can never have too much information about something like this that is re- that is exactly correct
1: you know because one of the things as a as a dad as you are and as parents we want to make sure especially when our kids say hey i'm going to go boating with something and that's kind of normal in east tennessee with all the lakes around say so, hey dad i'm going to go with so-and-so onto a boat we don't think anything of it really right. because it's happened for so long right and people are you know you always go down to whatever park but, you know, the water's edge becomes dangerous if you're not thinking and paying attention. And when you get into a boat, that becomes significantly challenging, perhaps.
2: Yes, it is. And people always ask me, you know, well, why are you qualified to teach boating safety? I've made all the mistakes you're going to make. <laughs> I I have been there. I have done that. I've, uh, I went one season and left the drain plug out on my boat three times in one season. That was early on when I had my boat, but it's still like... How can you not remember to put the drain plug in when you're trailing your boat? And it's just things become routine, but then there are things you also just, something messes you up in your routine and you forget about it. And then those are very common occurrences on the lake out there. And we want everybody to think about all this stuff every time they go out. And we want to put some new ideas into their mind of what they need to be thinking about. Because new laws were passed July 1st of this year in the state of Tennessee, Two new laws went into effect that affect boaters on East Tennessee waters.
1: Right. Okay. So let's let's go there because um, that's a good segue from from last show um, where we talked and you know, really encourage people to go there, check out that show and look because we really compact in about forty minutes just about everything you could want to know on the surface about you know boating safety, but these laws. Um, they don't change very often on the waterway. Tennessee doesn't change these laws much.
2: They really don't change very often, and this is regulatory information. It's really not a change to safety protocol, but they're making it now an actual law that you could be cited for or you could be fined for violating the law. So start with, like, what what are some of the changes that we've seen this year? One of the, one of the first changes that will probably affect most people that went into effect July 1st was and it's kind of similar to the move over law on Tennessee roadways where if you see an emergency vehicle, so if you see a patrol vessel out there with its blue lights flashing or or other types of red lights for fire personnel and that type of thing, if you see those on the rotterway, right then you have to bring your boat down to a no wake zone. Oh, even the, in the middle of the lake. Yes. Even if you're in the middle of the because they'll pull channel. you over wherever. And yes. it's not
1: like on the road where they'll say, you know, find an exit and pull off there. They'll just stop you right in the middle of the lake, right? Yes.
2: And the reason being is a lot of times they are transferring an officer from their boat to the boat that they have stopped. That's a dangerous process in and of itself. So if you get a big cruiser out on the waterway and it's hmm. it's cruising at, at twenty or thirty miles an hour and throwing out a four or five foot wake. That's going to rock those boats. It can do damage to those vessels. Now let's talk about why this really isn't a change to the law. Okay, it it is, but it's a clarification. But as a boater, you have always been responsible for any damage done by the wake of your your boat. Oh, so regardless of where you are, I always
1: know that you're supposed to have low wake in you know docking area. But you're talking about anywhere.
2: Yes. So that's why you have to maintain a good lookout. And if you see somebody in a kayak kayak along a, a jagged rock ledge here in East Tennessee and they're right up against the, the ledge and you're throwing out a th- three- or four-foot wake behind your vessel, you're responsible if that pushes them into the rocks and and injures them. Hmm. So that's something that people are not aware of, but you have to be aware of those things when you're out boating on the lakes, especially now that we have a lot of wakeboards Wakeboard boats that are specifically designed to throw out larger wakes, so that people can surf behind the boat or people can wakeboard behind the boat.
1: Oh, so you're saying that's an intentional design? I did not realize that.
2: Yeah, the, a lot of them have water ballasts inside that push it that, out. That push up, no, that push up water into the boat. So for every like gallon of water you're taking on, about eight ta- eight pounds of weight. So they may have a a twenty. 30-gallon container inside the boat itself that can fill with water, which is adding hundreds of pounds of weight to the boat, which forces it down on the water, increases its displacement, and throws out a larger, larger weight behind the boat. Previously, the you know Mastercrafts, the, the Ski Supremes, all of those years ago, for slalom skiing, those wanted to throw out the least amount of weight possible. Mm-hmm. So that they were not affected by the wake crossing behind the boat when they were skiing.
1: I see. Okay. Well, well, tell me about this because when we're talking about a wake and the damage that it can do, and and according to this law, it's always been, but now they're they're kind of fine tuning it. It sounds to me, um, it, Is a boater responsible for the wake to pro- uh, property that's on shore. So yes. if you're yes, if you're, they can be
2: really, uh, especially docks that are. So if you let's say you pull your type. kayak
1: halfway up or some type of rowboat or some type of canoe or runabout you kind of pull it up drag it up halfway and then a big weight comes and takes it displaces it and takes it into the rocks that's you're responsible for that too
2: yes because the you know the flat water without any wind wouldn't have moved that kayak okay, but so your they're... wake when your wake hit the right. shore it did and let's talk about um, paddle boards That's big. A lot of paddle boards, and a lot of them are operating around the shore because they want to be out of the the way of the main traffic. Well, if you're two or three feet from the shore, you may only be in two or three feet of water. That's right. But a three- or four-foot wake can suck the water out from the shore, set set the paddle board down on the the bottom, and then cover it back up. So – you have to be aware of that and just be aware that your wake is something that you're responsible for that emanates from your boat. Plus, if you're like me, it wouldn't take
1: much to displace to me rock you off them. that paddleboard, I understand. <laughs> you know, I would be uh, rocking and rolling on that board and probably fall off and get hurt. Your middle name's Grace, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, well, uh, when we come back uh, in the, in the uh, second part of this show, uh, we're going to continue on and ca- talk about this next law coming up.
0: Don't you housing hour with kevin ray continues helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it again kevin ray and we're back this is mark griffith co-host filling in
1: for kevin who is out today but um we got richard swan united states auxiliary coast guard (laughs) public relations, just general man United States Coast
2: Guard auxiliary. <laughs> let's let's get it all together in one phrase.
1: <laughs> so I'll just let you do that from here on out. But uh, we were talking in the in, just before the break about the uh, a couple laws that came in. The first one is the no wake, and if if you see somebody being pulled over by, I guess the law tennis, enforcement. Law enforcement. Or, yeah. That's a good good way. And I, I would assume Coast Guard too. I yes. mean, like the United States Coast Guard. Absolutely. If they're pulling, you know, you, the same law would apply. Yes but not necessarily for just two boats together
2: no if, if they're not it, in a, if it does not affect but keep in mind that's where it goes back to you know boating laws where you're responsible for, for the your wake. wake and if there're two boats tied up together and you rock them because you're throwing out a huge rake and somebody falls on the boat and breaks an arm you know because they lose hmm. their footing they they fall you could be responsible for it if that. you can catch them. well yeah Yeah, I've been on the lake because I
1: had a cabin cruiser, and I remember, you know, I was very conscientious when we were going through, and there's people, you know, in boats that were getting ready to um, ski and something, you know, they were preparing to ski, they're on the side a little bit, but you just crank it back, you know, and and just kind of go slow, and then you kick it back up. So just a little bit common courtesy, common sense, most of this
2: is. Most of the law evolves out of common sense, but some of the laws are a little unusual for being on the water. And that's where you need some type of education, which leads us to our second law, uh, which went into effect July 1st. And uh, boaters that were born after January 1st, 1989, have to have a Boater's Education Certificate. What changed about the new law is they used to allow marinas to rent jet skis and personal watercraft to people that were from other states that did not have boater education requirements. Now, Tennessee is requiring that if you rent any type of craft like that, you still have to have that boater's education certificate if you were born after January 1st, 1989. So that's a change to the law, and I'm sure that they will be enforcing that at marinas because I'm guessing it would invalidate insurance that the marina carries on on the personal watercraft if they rent it to somebody that has not demonstrated that they have that certificate of education
1: okay but you know if you're like me and you're you're going to another state and you're gonna if i go to the beach you know if i go to south carolina i don't necessarily know all the laws that are applicable to that matter of fact i don't know any of the laws other than the normal laws that i take with me so how how am i supposed to get that certificate if i want to have a fun day is there a fast way to do this can i do it online
2: You can get the the Tennessee certificate online. I'm not sure that there is a fast way that you can do it that day that you want to rent the jet ski. Most states, though, are going to some type of legislation requiring boater education. So that's something. And and if you have had a boating education course in the past, it's possible that you could get certified for that. But um, I'm not sure if you're over you know born before January first or on January first nineteen eighty nine or before then I don't really think you have to have it in the state of Tennessee mm-hmm. um so you could still rent a jet ski. I'm not sure how other states have similar laws or which other states have laws similar to that
1: and it, 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 as far as these laws go um are other states doing the same thing, or are we behind the curve in Tennessee or are we leading the pack as far as the
2: there are similar states doing other things um alabama i think has a speed law for being on the water do we Uh, we do not um so and i'm not sure what what that is necessarily their speed law is because that that sounds like a pretty good law it's typical for bass boats around here to (laughs) to be capable of being doing in excess of 70 miles an hour. oh absolutely in in a cove they'll they'll turn in the
1: cove at 70 80 miles an hour yeah I've been when I was had a cabin cruiser several times at night, and, and as, we're going to talk about some of those uh, safety equipment on board here in a minute. But that was one you just keep every all the lights on, so <laughs> nobody's going to hit you.
2: And that is a requirement anyway. You have to have lights on if you're at anchor. In the common crew. sense, yes.
1: You know you don't want to be in there at night. You do that one time with your lights off. Yeah, and and, and, and you hear that when somebody wha- runs into the side of you, and yeah. Well, they come in there flying, and, and the wake is incredible. Anyway,
2: and most of what, most of the laws that exist, most of the rules we're going to talk about today are common sense safety things that have arisen out of a need for okay. Certain, well, let me certain ask you: in, in,
1: in that yeah. situation, who's at fault if it's you for not having your lights on, or him for speeding through the cove?
2: We we talked about this basically uh, a little bit before, and marine law is different than road law, so highway law says somebody's at fault somebody was in the right. wrong marine law says there is no no fault operation if you were the victim and got hit then you should have been maintaining a lookout you, even at you, night you, if you're docked you could have done something maybe you could have anchored closer okay. to the edge of the of the shoreline maybe you could have Had your boat in a little different place, maybe you could have chosen a different anchorage, not so close to the entrance to the cove or not, you know, in an area where people couldn't see you from a distance. So they don't really recognize that there is no fault on either party. They look at fault attaching to both parties, not equally, but there is fault that attaches to both parties. And that's so. So with Adam's
1: statement or question, that means that if. If the law enforcement shows up in this accident, they could possibly cite both people for not having this and you being that.
2: Yes. Um, Let's say you have a cabin cruiser. Mm -hmm. Let's say that your stern light, your all-around white light, was below some of the superstructure of the rest of your vessel. Oh. Well, it should have been at the top edge of the vessel where it could have been seen – 360 degrees around so things like that they're going to look at and it's not that they they apply blame 50 50 they would a maritime court would generally apply blame based on who was at most fault but failure to maintain a lookout is also going to be attached to the other vessel in a lot of instances okay very good question yeah i think that makes sense too yeah See, see it; they all make sense. All the rules make sense until and you're it, the and victim. And it's just you have <laughs> to maintain.
1: I was parked up in the cove. Yeah. yeah, I was
2: parked there. Like I know there was a a boat that ran aground near Concord Park. Yeah, yeah. Because it was a it was a cabin cruiser, a large, probably forty foot, you know, cruiser. Mm-hmm. The guy went down to make a sandwich, oh. and when he went downstairs, you know, he probably rock the boat a little bit which your hull has planes that it operates on so if you moved one side of the boat or the other you're changing how your hull is sitting in the water sure and it may have taken a little different turn and he turned and he went straight into the bank and and i mean he had to have somebody come tow him off and repair the boat enough to get it to a marina to be repaired i've been there and that that probably happened 15 years ago but those are the little stories and tidbits that i have i wonder if that was me (laughs) because i think it was a fiberglass hole oh no mine was
1: wooden but i had to run it up on shore but it was it was sinking
2: yeah and and people ask you know well if you get a hole in the bottom of your boat on the lake what do you do you go towards the nearest shoreline and you ease it up onto the shore to where you can only sink i was full throttle
1: (laughs) i was going down
2: fast (laughs) and i had 25
1: foot cabin uh cabin cruiser so i had to get it up on there but anyway that's interesting. Okay, so so we talked about those lights going around. You you know that that's that's equipment that's required equipment, safety equipment. Let before we get into those types of things, tell me your list of um, non-required equipment that needs to be on board that you think you should not leave shore without.
2: Okay, let me talk required equipment real quickly first. Okay, just because that is required to have. You've got to have a life jacket of appropriate size and capacity for each person on board. Okay, this is required. This is required. You've got to have your registration and numbering, and it has to be a particular type. It has to be block lettering. It has to contrast your hall color. So if your hull color is dark blue, you can't put light blue lettering. Right. If your hall color is dark blue, you need white lettering. If your hall color is white, you need dark lettering. But, wait,
1: but let's but before we get going on on these lists. I mean, you mentioned the life jackets, one per person. But you know what? What type of the preserve? What type of you know? We had They're that basically three types. Yeah, because we had this disaster in Kentucky. Was it Kentucky on a ferry that went down? Yes, and and there was, were I life preservers ferry, underneath, but I'm not sure that anybody got them on.
2: That, we they, got one minute they, here. They on did one. They didn't really get them on, but. You've got three types. You've got a type one, which is an offshore. So you're out of sight of land. It's an offshore vest. It's Typical. rated to, to float you longer? Is Yes, that... and, and has more buoyancy in it. Um, may also, in some, it would have reflective tabs, may also have a strobe light attached to it.
1: Okay, we're going to hold that thought because we're going to come back and we're going to start right there on the on the other side of this break. This is the Housing Hour. We'll be right back. you
2: up on the roof mm-hmm. but
0: housing hour with kevin ray continues helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it again kevin ray all right i'm back this is mark griffith
1: co-host filling in for kevin ray and uh, this is the housing hour presented by mortgage investors group that's mig online.com if you need a home anywhere in the state of tennessee and other areas we got you covered give us a call for a, a loan officer and we'll we'll take care of you anyway mortgage investors group and we're here with Richard Swan talking about uh, boating safety and all this equipment. And this can be found on thehousinghour.com. We're gonna have this show up podcasted right there and you can get all this great groovy information from Richard. So um and we're talking on the first at the end of the second segment, because we're all already on three. Um life jackets and, and those types of things. You talked about type one or the
2: May what, West. May West. Yeah. Okay. See, I didn't screw up the name this time. <laughs> Fannie Mae. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, Fannie Mae. <laughs> I didn't revert to my other career. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then the other one is a is a Type 2, which is the okay. typical horse collar type of, of vest, and that is for near offshore. Um, so typically you want to be inside of land. You want to be able to see the land from wearing one of those. And then the Type 3, which is most used in this area, is the recreational vest. It's like the ski vest, but it is rated as a PFD. But it needs to be a vest. Device. You
1: can't have, like, a, a, I no, remember it's it's a skier belt. On. It's belt. A,
2: both of them have to clip on. Ski belts are no longer legal for anything. Anything. Really? I, I don't think they're legal but that, for That was big in a, my day. As a flotation device. Okay. Um, the other is registration and numbering. You have to have your boat registered in the state of Tennessee. You have to display the TN numbers unless your boat is a documented vessel registered with the Coast Guard. Okay. And that gets into the size and the displacement of the vessel. Um, House boats could qualify as that, large cruisers could qualify as that. Um, But you've typically got to be, you know, 28, 30 feet or more to qualify as that in get does it
1: have to be on the on the front of the the no, bow
2: you have to have with that type of vessel you have to have your name of the vessel painted on the stern of the boat on the rear of the boat and you have to have the port that you operate out of on, oh. on the the gotcha. rear of the boat okay um, you still have to have it registered in the state of Tennessee but you are exempt from displaying the numbers on the hull at the bow of the boat and T W R A doesn't really like that.
1: Okay, so I have a question. If you um, if you have a if you're buying a boat from someone and it's already got the name on the back and it's already got Tennessee registration numbers on it, when you do they reassign that number to you or do you have to take those letters off and put a new number on? Do you have to rename your boat? How does that work? You can change
2: the registration. The numbering would stay the same, but you would change the registration. Okay, so you don't have that expense. If it's a documented vessel and it has a name on the back of it, the same thing. You can change the name, but to keep it documented, you have to provide the old documentation. You have to submit a name change and get all of that done with the Coast Guard and then put the name of the new boat once that's approved on the stern of the vessel.
1: And, and, And for that to be the case... There's a specific size of vessel that would have to be for.
2: Yes. And it has to do with the weight that the boat can carry, the gross displacement that it can carry. And that's why you're not going to get something probably below um, 28, 30 feet to even qualify for that.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So do your homework when you're buying a a boat uh, because these things are important and matter. And the person selling may not really care to tell you. Exactly. Because the boat I I bought, they didn't care. They may not know. They probably don't. Well, I saw the letters when
2: I bought the boat,
1: but nobody told me what they meant until right. then. You know, when I took it down and had it pulled to Shodo Marina.
2: Yeah, and the know. letters have to be spaced correctly, so they have to have the the TN and then a space and then the four numbers and then a space and then two letters that identify the boat maker.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: All right, so that's uh, lettering. What's your your next? Um, next, you've got navigation lights. You've got to have lights uh, on the vessel. They have to be operable. Um, it doesn't matter that you're not out at night. Usually, if you are stopped there, they may check the lights and make sure that you.
1: So have even them. if it's day, they may spot check you the lights. Yes, really. Mm-hmm.
2: Ventilation um, is required if you have enclosed fuel tanks. If you have enclosed in in engine compartment, you need to have. Um, Ventilation. Um, sometimes it's just from the movement of the vessel, but sometimes it's powered. If it is a powered system, then the powered the blower has to be operable. So, so if you got a switch that says blower on your dashboard, but it hadn't worked in twenty years, you're out of compliance.
1: So most of these, you know, these older crafts like Chris Craft and um, Owens, you know, kind of the cabin cruiser I had. I guess it was just from the air moving because there was no blower in the compartment area blowing out that area. So is, is, that, is that kind of a newer yes. type of technology that's required on boats these days? The, automatic, the
2: automatic blower is a safety thing because previously, in most cases, you would open up your engine compartments and allow air to circulate because unlike a car where gas fumes just flow to the pavement and then disperse out along the ground, There's nowhere for those to go in an enclosed hall. They're going to sink to the bottom of the hull, but there's no way to remove those without ventilation or air movement inside that compartment.
1: So, uh, okay, because the type of boat I had, it had you know pickups on the side, and that gave it at
2: the front, at the front, and those had two and on the side, and down to the engine compartment, and then they had cows facing the rear on the back of the boat in most cases, right? And that would have exhausted the air from the engine compartment. And that's separate from your exhaust from your motor.
1: So it, it just never dawned on me that when I'm sitting there idling that I'm really – that's kind of a dangerous situation, actually.
2: Yes, it could be.
1: I never. And that's, never why, that's why most
2: of them have gone now to power blowers. Okay.
1: That's what, that's what I was thinking is probably now most of these vehicles on there have these power blowers. But double check if you're buying.
2: Okay. Um, you're also required to have fire extinguishers if you have enclosed fuel tanks, if you have any type of cabin – structure to the, um, the boat, um, distress signals, which in most cases in this area can be a flashlight, but it needs to be operable. Um, a lot of people have flares. Flares can be a dangerous thing in East Tennessee, as you know, the wildfires that occurred up near Gatlinburg. Well, a flare could easily start some type of fire like that. If we're in drought conditions or a very dry summer, then you want to be very careful with using flares on the lake and be very careful of where that flare is going because that flare has to land somewhere. And you want it to land in the water, but you don't want it to land on either another boat or on the dry grass. Well,
1: have you seen these commercials, these TV commercials where they have the um, LED emergency lights for cars and they have magnets and you put them on there and you turn them on and they have different flash patterns, uh, but mainly orange flash, but different patterns of lights. And, and white lights. So they're for emergency roads. Instead of road flares, you're supposed to put these in the road.
2: Yeah, Well, yes, but these are pyrotechnics. Um, so these are things that are going to burn. Right. They have handheld ones that emit both a, a light and a smoke pattern, uh, which are better in the daytime. Because think about open water ocean going. You're a 20-foot vessel, uh, maybe less than that. And you're trying to get a plane's attention that okay. is ten thousand gotcha. feet in the air. You need something bigger than your vessel. So a smoke pattern or a bright light is going to help get attention if you're in trouble. Anyway. Do
1: they have different requirements for these flares uh, in yes. in ocean if going you're, versus if you're lake
2: shore? You have to have aerial flares. Okay. Um, if you're near shore, you can get by with just a, a bright light or with a handheld flare. Gotcha. Uh, we also have um, for gasoline engines. You have to have a backfire flame arrestor on an inboard engine to eliminate sparks into your fuel into your engine compartment, and then sound producing devices, which are required in fog situations, and those get into larger vessels that are, you know, 20 feet and and up or 30 feet and up. So those.
1: So l- let me ask you about those. Not every boat's
2: going to have those. In in a fog
1: situation, and of course, I've I've had a boat in a foggy nighttime fog situation especially on the lakes in around tennessee um what what what's the are you supposed to honk every so often is there a rule of thumb of how often you're supposed to sound out if you're in a fog i know i know i take my a searchlight and go left and right
2: There is, and fog is going to be vessels 26 feet and larger are required to have fog producing devices and those type of things Um, but there are even audible signals for backing out of your slip at the marina you're supposed to sound a horn signal for doing that do people do this some people do it usually annoys everybody else at the marina so a lot of times at marinas they don't do it but it is a requirement and there again it's you know well who's at fault well he didn't give a sound signal i didn't know he was coming out when i finally realized he was coming out i couldn't stop my boat my boat was drifting too fast for me to stop it.
1: right but okay keep going
2: um and then we get into uh, a battery cover also uh, because any kind of like metal object dropped onto the top of a battery like in an engine compartment could create a spark and create a fire so those are the required things okay let's
1: get into well before we get into the uh take a break yeah we're gonna take a break because uh we're we're coming up on a, a hard stop right here and when we come back on the other side of this break, we're going to get Richard Swan's recommended equipment that uh, you may or may not have on board. So stay with us.
0: So I'd like to know where you got the notion. Said I'd like to know where you got the notion. To rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. Don't get the boat over. Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. All right, we're back.
1: This is Mark Griffith, TheHousingHour.com. Check it out. Social media, Facebook, slash The House in Hour, Twitter, at The Housing Hour. Interact with us, and we're going to be posting this and boosting it. This is part two of our boating safety, and we have Richard Swan, auxiliary officer extraordinaire and a PR man the United States Auxiliary Coast Guard person. Guilty as charged. All right, good. So we're going to have his top recommended. Top ten?
2: These are not required items, but they're items (coughs) that I think are important. They're recommended. On every vessel, even around here. Um, The first is an anchor and anchor road. What's Uh, a road? Yeah, anchor road is your line that is attached to the anchor. Why don't they call it a a line? Because this is the maritime and we (laughs) do things a little different. But it's going to be typically on a larger boat, like a you know, 30, 40-foot boat, you're typically going to have about 10 to 12 feet of chain. That's designed to hold the anchor down in the water um, so that when the rope is pulling up, it is pulling level with the bottom of the, of the water and not pulling up on it. Because if you pull straight up on it, it's likely to come up. Mm-hmm. So you want to have, and then you also want to have, about a 1 to 7 ratio, if it's a foot of water, you want about 7 feet of anchor line out. If it's 10 feet of water, you want 70 feet of anchor line out.
1: How do you measure this stuff? Is it marked? Is um, the, rope marked? the one I had on mine, it, I mean, you just threw it in when it stopped
2: then that's all you had <laughs> and and the anchor drug until it hits something and it just grab you just you get it at an angle yes. until it stops you know and that angle is what makes the anchor dig into the bottom of the
1: because it's the, designed that way and it opens it hinges yes the end of the anchor
2: hinges so we're like a grappling hook exactly mm-hmm. and those are used as anchors sometimes you also have the mushroom anchors. So everything is designed for particular waters. Do
1: do fishing boats use these types of devices? I've seen some. Fishing
2: boats use more of a mushroom type of anchor or a heavy weight, although some fishing boats now have these long poles that come back at the stern of the boat that kind of keep them from dragging the shore if they're getting into a shallow area as they're drifting or using their trolling motor. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing is some type of first aid kit. So that's um, not required. A it, first aid kit is not required. Um, it probably is on larger vessels that you have some of that. It definitely is on a commercial vessel. Um, but on most boats, it is not required equipment. It is recommended equipment. Okay. Um, and then a marine radio. Um, many people, especially the larger vessels in this area, have marine radios on board. And that's one of the best ways to get in touch. A lot of the marinas... Have a marine radio at their marina that they could hear a cry for help or they could get someone out to you, um, and that's very handy. Now, Is that
1: really preferred, or do you have the cell phone and emergency vehicles can reach you?
2: If you have a cell phone, be very sure that you have coverage for things like Internet and all of that because if you don't, then you probably you need to keep a list, which I right. used to keep a list on my boat of marinas that I would in the areas that I would be boating in so that I could call someone that was the closest to me to get assistance if I needed assistance. Gotcha. But you also need to have a good rapport with those people because they're not just going to come if they don't know you and they don't know exactly where you are. They're going to call 911 probably on your behalf, but at least you got in touch with someone. Gotcha. Um, Navigation rules. You have to have the actual book of navigation rules for craft that are – above 38, uh, 36, or 39 meters in length. Check the the rules. You're required to have the navigation rules. Um, And then know your state and local requirements. Know your state and local waters that you're boating in.
1: Let's go back uh, on the rules. Um, Maps, charts, are they required based on the type of craft you have for the waterway that you're operating in, or is that just a luxury item?
2: I don't believe that anybody requires charts or maps. Okay. They do require a copy of the navigation rules, which are published by the Coast Guard. Um, but I don't believe that anybody requires you to have maps or charts. But it's it's common sense. Mm-hmm. Anybody operating a larger vessel is going to have those. I have well, especially
1: those. if you're drafting, you know, four feet. Yeah. You, you need to know where the shallows are.
2: I have those on my boat and, and – Buoys in this area are not always in the right location. Um, There's a buoy tender that comes up out of Chattanooga once a month, Um, but they come up once a month because barges hit a buoy. It gets caught on the understructure of the barge sometimes and gets dragged out of position until it eventually breaks loose, gets all beat up in a lot of cases, so they will come in and replace the buoy and put it back in the correct spot. But that... Is every 30 days. Okay. And then have additional lines. Um, I recommend a heaving line, which allows you to throw your line over to another boat. You usually need something. I've got like a a dog toy that's for like teaching dogs to retrieve something in the water. Mm -hmm. It's got a little bit of weight to it. It's got a grommet on the end, so I can attach that to a small line and swing that and throw it over to another boat and then pass across a larger line, a tow line, or something like that. So that's a good thing to have. And then have spare parts. We've talked about this quite a bit on past shows. You can usually find somebody with intelligence and skills out on the water, but have tools and parts that they can use. Um, So if you know of specific equipment, like my boat chews up alternator belts, so I always keep spare alternator belts on my boat. And that way, if I break down out there, I know I can fix it and not ruin my whole day.
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm the type of person that when I'm going on a trip, I usually grab my tool, not a toolbox, it's a bag. And I have a small bag where I throw the essentials in and then I throw them in the back of a car because it never fails. You know, wherever I go, something's broken and I don't want to wait for somebody to come up and fix it. I just want to get on with it.
2: So, and, I, I mean, and I'll guarantee you, I'm not going to loosen my alternator with my hand. No. Because it, I've tightened it too tight with tools, and you can't just loosen that with your hands. So mm-hmm. carry, carry the tools along with you. It adds a little extra weight to your boat.
1: The Boy Scout Boy motto. The Boy Scout motto. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, tell me about,
1: um, you know, some crafts you can have oars or paddles. You really can have them on any size boat. I had one on my big one, but I couldn't reach it. If I need on the side, I couldn't reach the, the water anyway.
2: Okay. So there you could have a longer oar type of thing if you wanted it. And if you had a person on either side of the boat with an oar. And the reason that I list that as good safety equipment is, let's say that you break down in the middle of the channel on Fort Loudon Lake. You're stuck there.
1: Especially at night.
2: And Fort Loudon Lake has a lot of different turns, has a lot mm-hmm. of different crooks and crannies. And if you're in the middle of the channel and disabled and a barge comes up river, (laughs) they, the pilot house for the barge can be a thousand feet behind the first boat.
1: You don't want to be upstream without a paddle.
2: Yeah. And so you want to be able to, to maneuver somehow to get out of the middle of the channel. And that's why I suggest those guys aren't going to stop. Those guys can't stop. I mean, if they back off on their throttle, then the other thing that they lose is they lose maneuverability. Navigation. Maneuverability exists by water passing across the hull. Mm-hmm. And if they lose that, then they're adrift and they can't, so they, can't maintain any direction. Or they control. just wave by to you, run you and, over. And they can't stop immediately, especially if they're going downriver. They're not going to stop for three miles. But rules are different for those guys because their wake that they push out, and it's
1: massive wake. I've You have to hit them with my boat. I had to hit them square, yeah. or it would top me over. Um, no no rules apply for their wake. They don't have the same rules, you think? They, I,
2: they apply, but they're going to be given a little more leeway because of just the massive displacement that they have. And they really don't throw out as deep a wake as you get with a pleasure craft right so a pleasure craft can throw out a much deeper weight because it's a smaller vessel and the waves are are
1: but the way they go around a bend they go out and they do it like in right angles and they swing their end out and it just pushes large volumes of water i've watched them do it and and that swell can be two two feet yeah it's you know pretty impressive okay so those
2: are some recommended. Any other items that you can think of? Um, teach <clears throat> teach the people on your boat how to operate your boat, and teach them where you are on the lake, how to get back to the nearest help. So that if something happens to you and you're it's your boat, you're like, well, I know all that. I'm I'm gonna be the one that takes us back. You don't need to know that. Yes, other people on your boat need to know how to drive your boat. They need to know where they are on the no, lake. Need to know how to do it. And you, they need to know as, where you keep as the much spare as you, keys to, yes, right, <laughs> to help you get back in the case of an emergency. Right. Because help is going to be more limited out there, and you're not going to be able to say, well, I'm at Level Road and in, in the interstate.
1: Right. Right. Well, these are all fantastic tips. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. This is part two of Boating Safety. You've done an excellent job. Appreciate thank that. Thank you very much. Everybody Mark. who's listening to us, go to thehousinghour.com. Check us out. Get this podcast. Share it with family and friends, anybody you want to. Facebook, Twitter it, whatever you need to. Get it out there. This is Mark Griffiths saying see you next time on The Housing Hour.